You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. What matters in capitalism, held in association with the FT. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Ravi Matu. I'm from the FT and I'm hosting this session on the small topic of capitalism, uh, which, because I work for the FT, is Arcolent of Love, which we saw yesterday. Um, I'm going to introduce the panel and then we'll get into the discussion. From the far side, Ian Martin is a political blogger at The Telegraph and wrote a very well-regarded book on RBS, which was shortlisted for the FT Business Book of the Year Award. Uh, Heather McGregor is the head of Taylor Bennett, the recruitment firm, and also the FT's own Mrs. Moneypenny. I've unveiled her, but I think she's unveiled herself before. <laughs> uh, Helena Morrissey is the uh, CEO of Newton Investment Management and also the founder of the 30% Club, which is an advocate for uh, increasing the representation of women on boards. Paul Mason is the culture and digital, digital editor at Channel 4 News and formerly, formerly a longtime economics editor at Newsnight. And finally, Anne Richards is the chief investment officer at Aberdeen Asset Management. Um, that's a very long panel. Uh, you can, everyone here is on Twitter, so you should follow them. Um, we're going to start with a quick clip, and then we'll go from there. So, clip, please. They've been warned we're here. They don't like it. It adds humiliation to hardship. There are people that, let's say a few months ago, had a job, had a house. They could pay the rent, they could afford a car, they could afford going on holidays, etc. And now because they lost their job, because they don't have other sources of income, they find themselves uh, on the street. Leo is one of them. He used to make a living painting religious icons till people stopped buying as they hoarded their cash for necessities. Now he sleeps at the shelter upstairs and helps out at the soup kitchen. Look, a homeless person is a person who believes deeper inside that has nothing. So a portion of food is something that he will own in a minute and he's afraid of losing it. That's the mentality. I want to get it. I want to own it more than eat it. I want to own something. Médecins du Monde are most often seen working among the starving and refugees but their clinic in central Athens is crammed. It used to be mostly immigrants coming here. They could get free emergency care without having to prove they had papers. Nikitas Kanakis, who runs the clinic, tells me that's changed. What we notice the last years is that more and more people, they don't have access to the health system. Only here, in this practice, we see now more than 70,000 people per year, and for them, half of them, they were Greek now. Three years ago, they were not more than 8 to 10 percent. Greeks like Christos, who has a chronic nerve disorder. I am uninsured. This is the only place that can uh, help me. Right, as all of you would have guessed, that was about Greece um, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Um, we're kind of here to discuss really the point of capitalism at this, in the state we're in. Uh, the financial crisis was meant to sort it all out and make it a bit more equitable. Um, and yet it seems we're in this state of dualities in capitalism. On the one hand, Silicon Valley is this place of hyper-innovation where these amazing companies produce these amazing things. 
and yet the number of people on food stamps is at a 10-year high. Um, it's a place where uh, Amazon can employ 14 people to generate $10 million of revenues, uh, but traditional bricks and mortars retailers employ 47 to achieve the same amount. So while this innovation is happening, you're having this arguably a hollowing out of, of middle-class jobs which are required to kind of buy the goods they sell and provide the data on which many of these companies exist. Um, at the same time, you have this curious thing about inequality. So in the West, people like the Pope are issuing encyclicals on inequality. Barack Obama talks about the top 1% taking on much higher amounts of pay versus the average worker. And yet the Gini index of, of inequality worldwide has actually gone down. Globally, um, as my colleague John Gapper has written very eloquently, inequality is actually getting better or, or, or lessening, um, driven by China, India, Brazil, and Indonesia. And I was struck by something in the China talk, the CNN clip that was, a, appeared alongside that yesterday, um, that one of the commentators said uh, one of the great things about China is that there's a new area in Shanghai where people can go hang out. There's a Paul's patisserie and a Starbucks there, and the Chinese can go and live the good life. Um, what is the good life for if it's not for Paul's and Starbucks? Um, so on that note, and let me start with you. You work for Aberdeen Asset Management. You're in the middle of the city. Is capitalism bust? Well, I hope not. It certainly wasn't when I left this morning, so I sincerely <laughs> hope it's not now. Um, I think, uh, perhaps by way of introduction and by way of context, I think it's quite interesting to look at capitalism in terms of the very, very long cycles which economies go through, which the Western European economy has go, gone through. And I'm talking, um, I'm talking a thousand years, I'm not mm. talking five years or ten years or, or fifty years. Um, because, and I, actually, by the way, I should caveat this by saying that I'm going to talk about economic history being neither an economist nor a historian, and I'm sure there's a lot of both in the room. So with some trepidation, I launch into it. But it's quite interesting, when you look at that clip on Greece and when you think where we are today and why we are where we are today, to go back and look at something like the Black Death in the 14th century in Europe, which was a situation where there was massive inequality. You had effectively a whole uh, raft of the population as serfs with a very small baronial elite that had all the pricing power at their disposal. But the Black Death came along and it wiped out something like a third of the workforce, depending on whose numbers you believe. And what that did was, for, for the first time, it gave the serfs pricing power. It gave the, the labor the ability to price itself rather than simply accepting what was given to it. That in turn led to inflation. It led to the elite trying to put labor back in its box, which then led to the peasants' revolt. But that gradually gave way to increasing innovation, for example, eventually through the invention of the printing press, which then brought a whole new element into the economy that was going on there. So when you roll forward to today and you look at what we're going through today, it's very interesting to look at how what went on through the 70s in particular, when you saw a lot of pricing power sitting with labor, effectively acting as a restraint on capital. But with the introduction of China into the global workforce, that trend towards globalization dramatically shifted the power of labor versus capital. And so that interplay and that tension which you've had between labor and capital, which for a long time was played out at quite a micro level, has suddenly become a macro global phenomenon. And I think capitalism isn't broken, but it's going through one of these cycles, tension, labor, capital, 
pricing of goods and leading on to innovation, which is really what we've seen through the last 25 years. And arguably, that's what has brought the inequality that we see, not in the developing world, not in China and India per se, but in the developed world. Paul, you've reported from Greece, and you're obviously in your new role writing a lot about innovation in the tech industries and a kind of slightly different kind of aspect of capitalism. Coming off of what Anne says, is that something that's you would say reflects what you're seeing in those new sectors of the economy? Well, I think to, to answer the, that by looking at the big question that we're, we're asking, um, I think the neoliberal era, the last 25 years, will be seen in retrospect as a false start. I mean, it's over. We have to be really clear. Even though the policy elite, the 1%, are trying to keep shoving it down our necks, it is over. You can't keep winding up a financialized system um, and, you know, asset, fueling asset bubbles without they keep bursting. So we're just going to get another one. It'll burst. Um, the, the question is what replaces it? And I think to, I, I, I welcome your thousand-year perspective. I think it's really interesting because we, if you say we, I think we're kind of on the, on the cusp of a third capitalism. We've had mercantile financial capitalism in the 17th and 18th centuries. It's replaced by industrial capital. It goes, industrial capitalism goes through the various long cycles itself. And now I think we're on the cusp of an info economy. Um, Keynes once said, you know, uh, money is like a link to the future. It, what we do with money, it reflects what we think the future is going to be. And I think that the financial crisis now, if you look at it over the long term, it was, it was a signal back from the future to us saying, um, the future is not what you think it's going to be. That the information age is unfolding, it is, it is disrupting everything, the information content of ordinary physical goods like aeroplanes turns out to be huge, um, leave aside information goods themselves. Uh, we've known since about 1990 that information goods have no pricing power. So it's not just labour that has, no longer has pricing power, goods have no pricing power. Their, their trajectory is towards zero price. The only thing that stops them having a zero price is monopolies. We thought monopolies were gone, but they're, they're endemic to the economy. So what I've come to the conclusion is that this third unfolding kind of economy we're going to have, the information-rich economy, might not be able to be a market economy. It's not a case of it needs to be a planned economy or a statized one, but that the market mechanisms that, we, that have driven industrial capitalism probably can't survive in large parts of the information economy. And we have to work out the mix between non-market, peer-produced, free stuff, and market stuff. So that, that's, that's, where I, that, that, that's, longer, that's the longest telescope I can give on, on the crisis I think we're going through. And does that relate to the UK, Western economies no, in particular? Western economies. I mean, the neoliberal deal was you know, that we lived our kind of debt-rich, uh, credit-fueled, um, consumer-driven, don't-produce-anything type economy because a whole bunch of other countries took the other side of the deal. They don't have a very financialized economy. They don't run up debt. They produce. Um, and they, are, they have a parsimonious lifestyle. So, you know, China, Japan, Germany are the three, the mercantile companies. Countries that they, for them to go on as they are, means that we have to t keep on taking our side of the deal. We want to reform it. We want to de, de imbalance the global economy, and it will be on. It will be rebalanced. But the, in rebalancing it, their model goes as well. Yeah, let me bring you in on the on particularly on the policy front. This rebalancing that Paul's talking about. I mean, is it a myth that policymakers can actually affect this change? And actually, do they need to be more honest with the populace and say, look? These manufacturing jobs that you're 
peddling are actually not going to come back. Well, that we all rely yeah. on the oligarchs and it's a good thing. Quite possibly, and then the British middle classes will need their own version of Bob Crow when the robots take over. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I just wanted to say that I think, I mean, I'm a pro-market person, but what I find remarkable is that the reaction to the financial crisis has actually been as muted as it has been mm. in the UK. I think it's worth remembering not just the thousand-year context, but the 70-year context. Mm. It was the worst um, disaster to hit the UK economy in seven decades. The biggest recession, peak to trough, a catastrophic impact on, um, on living standards. And I, I'm astonished as a pro-market person that people aren't firstly angrier uh, about it, about what the financialization of the UK economy did to millions of, uh, to millions of of, of our fellow citizens. I'm also puzzled as to why it hasn't produced a political reaction in the UK. <clears throat> Previous crises, you know, the 1930s in the US gives us FDR, um, the rise of hypercapitalism in the late 19th century in the US leads to the progressive movement and Teddy Roosevelt and the idea of trust busting and taking on monopoly. And actually, uh, our political class, mm. the response has been pretty vapid. Miliband is interesting in that he poses a lot of the right questions about concentration of power and about monopoly and about how you tackle that. Um, <coughs> but when it actually gets to the level of pro proposing precise policy prescriptions, the result is usually pretty old school and, and, um, and not particularly impressive. So I'm, I'm puzzled as to why people are not absolutely... Uh, we're angry with the individual bankers, but why people don't, aren't questioning more. That process which, begin, which began in the 1960s and 1970s, where Britain took the most extraordinary gamble on increasing the size of its financial sector, which was when Thatcher left office, about 70% of UK GDP. By 2010, 450% of UK GDP. Now, when uh, uh, their balance sheets, their total assets, um, and when people ask me, when I wrote a book about RBS, people say, people say How, why did this hit Britain so hard? Why did Britain have the worst experience uh, in the financial crisis? It's because we took the, the biggest, of the major developed economies, we took any, a completely crazy uh, gamble and blew up our banking system. Helena, keep coming on. Yeah, no, I would dispute that, Ian. I'd say that there has been a quiet uh, revolution, but a very significant one. It hasn't been a noisy sort of waving banners one in businesses, but I think the financial crisis did have businesses thinking it's not just about making money and making lots of it, but it's about how we make money, and it has businesses questioning the role that we play in society and not that we're separate from it. And you can argue that that wasn't some sort of massive altruism, but actually mm. a needs must approach. But I think what I've seen um, on many levels as an investor, but also on something like the 30% Club, which I'm not going to pretend is you know, as, as radical or as big as you know, the whole of society, but it has been a really interesting journey of the last three and a half years, um, and Heather's been on it as well, um, in terms of seeing the difference in, um, you know, post the financial crisis, obviously it wasn't at all the first thing that people thought of, but then people started realizing within businesses that actually the status quo it can't go on, that it's, we screwed it up. Um, and in that case, it was about having one homogenous type of person running businesses. And it opened the doors to people thinking not just about more women, but different types of people that should be at the table and no one having a monopoly on good ideas. 
I think it's very unfinished business, and I worry, um, I mean, I certainly think QE quantitative easing has actually exacerbated <coughs> the inequality of wealth, and I do think there's a danger, ironically, that as the economy recovers, people think, oh, passed all that, solved all that, move on quickly, but actually there has been a revolution in terms of people thinking, what are, what are we trying to achieve here, and bringing responsible issues, responsible, issues of responsibility into the mainstream, not just in the, you know, the loony fringe in businesses. I, th I think the greatest uh, threat to capitalists is posed by, and I speak as a capitalist, is posed by the leadership class of uh, capitalism. How do we end up in a situation where a guy takes over the co-op group and thinks that it's normal, standard behaviour to earn three and a half million pounds a year before he's fixed the company? I mean, I, th I think it's a, it's a huge culture shift, that, actually. It's this idea of expectation and uh, just the belief that that's, just a sta that's a standard pay packet and that he gets so furious when someone leaks this to the press uh, that he then storms out. Um, but that's a, a build-up of the past issues. And I'd say there's three a lot and of questioning. Million pounds. No, but I'm, I'd say there's a lot of questioning now of, of who has the right to be the leaders. You made the good point about the information age. And, you know, it's, it doesn't cut the mustard anymore for people to be the same, you know, spat out from the system and believe they have a right to run companies. Ba you have bank, to earn CEO, bank CEOs have just given themselves massive pay rises. And, uh, and, ma and major, and major shareholders, major shareholders have stood by and watched as bank CEOs, after the crisis, turned bonuses into increases in salary. And, and Anthony Jenkins, has uh, um, just just to come back on the the point about why there hasn't been a greater outcry here. I mean, clearly, if you look and you look at the way the European parliamentary elections are likely to go um, going forward, you've seen in a number of countries, Greece being an obvious one, where there has been uh, you know, a lot of angst about what's happened because they've seen the immediate consequences. What's been strange about the UK's recovery since the crisis is that actually the job market hasn't taken that much of a strain because real standards of living have fallen, but for the most part, people have kept their jobs. And you've seen you know, 1.2 million jobs created. Actually, that, that has muted, I think, here, a lot of the reaction to that. And one argument which I've heard put forward, which I think is, is a valid one, is that companies were not willing to put in capital investment because they were so cautious mm. about the outlook. So what they did instead was actually keep people employed because it's easier, because labour market rules are relatively flexible in the UK, it's easier to keep them employed than get rid of them and hire them back again. So they were using labour as a substitute back for capital, which is counterintuitive mm. given QE and keeping interest rates suppressed. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a reasonably cogent argument as to why there hasn't been a greater outcry here. Heather, as uh, so somebody who runs a, 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 cons a recruitment consultancy, how does this play out? Yes, well, the first, the first point I want to make is that there's a lot of debate about the fact that, you know, Britain has abandoned its manufacturing base and that, you know, this is a, somehow a sign of a weakness mm. and that we've let everybody else... You know, I run a company that's been going for 32 years. We've never made anything. Okay. Um, we have been consistently profitable for 32 years. We have exported our things for 32 years and remitted that income and paid a lot of tax on it mm. in the UK. So, you know, I want to stand up for the service industries. You know, they're not just banks. There's an awful lot of us out there that have been very, very successful through good times and bad. Um, but the second thing is that, you know, because we are in the business of finding people for companies who are looking to hire the best talent, mm. you know, I would, tell, I would put to you that what has changed, very much changed, um, uh, uh, I suppose, over the, not just over the financial crisis, but probably over the last 20 years, is that the pricing mechanism for labour <coughs> is not cash. I, I would say that we phone 
we speak to probably 3,000 people a year on telephone, we interview about 1,000 face-to-face, we put less in the UK, as opposed to our other offices, we put probably less than 50 people into jobs. And if the first question when we speak to somebody on the telephone is, how much is it paying? I would, I would say that the conversation probably wouldn't last much longer than that. Um, the pricing factor, the factor that is allocating labour, certainly as far as we're concerned, is reputation. Mm. People want to work for great companies. They want to work for great people, and they want to work for great causes. But is that not, frankly, if you're rich? I mean, if you're starting out, how much you get paid makes a difference. I mean, yes, that's a totally even, okay. legitimate question. Right, give you a, it, even when you're starting out, okay, if you had an, an, an offer from the FT for less money than from a, you know, a, a, a pretty low-class uh, publication somewhere for a lot of money, you would go and work at the FT because it's the most fantastic name to have on your CV. And that is, that is what I mean about pricing but of reputation. It's interesting. It's yesterday, one of the conversations I didn't include in my intro is that I talked to a young journalist from the States who said... Look, if I was starting out in journalism now, I would tell everyone, go work for BuzzFeed, it's well-resourced, and you don't have to work for those assholes at all media companies, <laughs> like me. Um, <laughs> so, it's interesting you say that. Uh, uh, and, I, I, yeah, and, we, and we have publicly and, and very proudly worked for the Murdoch Empire, and we have publicly and very proudly worked for lots of other media organisations, mm. and, and lots of other companies, and lots of not-for-profits, um, and it is definitely reputation is the pricing mechanism of the post-capitalist era. And the other thing is, as as Helen said, is that people get together and change things, and shareholders do change things. I mean, you know, you ask how people have managed to be paid this kind of money, it's not, you know, he didn't wake up one morning and decide to pay himself that money. There was a remuneration committee, there was a Mm. chairman, Mm. there was a process, there are, the co-op in particular has an awful lot of members who don't exercise appropriate governance mechanisms, Um, and in many, many cases, before the financial um, authority. Even I remember December 2011 was before the shareholders, so-called shareholders, spring in, comp, in compensation terms. You know, people, people sit on pension committees. People sit on remuneration committees. They sit on each other's remuneration. Mm. Yeah, no, they don't. But no, they don't just sit on each other's remuneration committees. There's also plenty of people. I used to work for a big bank. We had representation on our pension committee. Those people who represented the workers on the pension committee never spoke up. Never said anything about it. Paul, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, just a, another way of looking at what's happened to jobs and what's, what you're talking about um, <clears throat> is the economy is essentially financialised from top to bottom. And that is that, that you know, if we look at... Uh, the British economy. No, the modern Western economy. Uh, but we've got one of the most financialised in the sense that um, the, the capitalist who makes the most profit by percentage out of my activity is the person who provides my credit card. Um, Those of us who work for private companies, we are involved in value creation, profit generation, but nothing is as as well, nothing generates profit so much as the the financial side, the consumption side. Um, And so that's good. I mean, in in the sense that that the economy is bifurcated between production, consumption, and also the creation of financial value through our everyday activities. Now, if you then look at it from the point of view of an ordinary person, give me, give, we're talking about people, you know, what, what drives people. Um, during covering the student loans protest, um, when, the, when they found out they were going to have to take out nine grand loans, why, why people panicked is, was put, up, put very well to me by one young kid who said, my mum earns £9,000 a year. Um, when Gordon Brown abolished the 10p tax rate, I went onto the street and said to people, what does this mean to you? And they said, well, I earn 12 and a half grand a year. It's quite a lot. 
It means a lot. This, this is, these are the people we are talking about when we talk about why are people disconnected from the political class, okay? Or why won't they fight for Syria or Ukraine? They have no connection to the lifestyle many of us in this room lead. But they understand one thing. To have a job means you can have a credit card. And it means that you're not going to be taking a loan out from loanshark.com on the football uh, shirt, yeah? Um, you, you, can, you can have access to the mainstream financial world. And I think that is, that it, just as much as, as capital has desired to hoard labor, labor has desired to hoard itself inside the corporate system because it knows what, it, what the, out there is the at financial abyss. So we've all colluded in, in, in this. What is it telling us about the future direction of the economy? Is that work is becoming less necessary. What do we do inside these jobs? Even people who work for Amazon have that arm thing on. What do we do? We, do, we don't work uh, with our hands so much. We're working with our brains. We're working in a much more permeable way, you know, in, in the sense that I'm working now, even though I'm off. You know, uh, it's, we, we, the, bar the boundaries between work and non-work are broken down. And therefore, what we've been paid for, essentially, is to be ourselves, whether we are the Amazon Fulfillment Center worker on X grand or whether we're us. Um, and I just think that we've got to understand that as part of the, trying to understand the solution. What, what kind of vision do we have for the future of, e, of e, the economy? It is a re, it, we have to provide a, a, a vision that explains to people how this less, lessened need for work and greater leisure time and greater and therefore you know, lower pricing power for labor adds up to something. What does it add up to? What is the new version of the Ford factory? As for the 20th century. Anne, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I, would, I mean, I think there's definitely a skills point in there, but, but perhaps just putting that to one side, you might want to come back onto that later. But going back to what you were saying <coughs> earlier about the, the financial system, actually, it's broader than just the financial system, because if you look at corporate profits globally, yeah. they're pretty yeah, much at an all-time high yeah. as a share of GDP, wherever you are. And what, what that said is that despite the fact we had this massive... Um, drawdown of economic activity in 2008-2009, actually, the corporate sector was not hit by it very hard. Mm. And when you try and rationalise, I think what you come back to is the fact that QE and the bailing out of the financial system had the effect of stopping just about any company mm. in any sector going Business, bust. Yeah. So what you did not have this cycle, which you've had every other cycle, is a cleansing, mm. which is deeply distressing and results in high unemployment when it happens. You've had it in Greece, you've had it in Spain, but you've not had it in the UK or the US. So we don't have that cleansing process. So you've got a lot of companies who have continued to survive when actually perhaps the economy would have become a more efficient economy if they hadn't survived, and we might have had faster growth coming out of this. But the other point is that what QE has done, and the bailing out has done, is it helped people who were asset rich, not income mm. dependent. Mm. And that's why the income equality has grown, because people who already had asset wealth were bailed out by QE, and it left the real standards of living at, at the lower income part of the population to really take the strain and suffer. So asset rich benefited through this cycle at the expense of labor. I think, I, I mean, uh, I said the, the same sort of thing you said it more eloquently, Anne, but the, um, I think there is a realisation in, uh, uh, let's put it in your terms, sort of wealthy or established um, 
groups that for it to be sustainable. Um, I think there's a sort of sense that the policymakers sort of extended and pretended um, that we actually haven't got a bedrock um, to grow from. I think this, you know, I'll keep coming back to this point that I think that there's a realization that to be sustainable and to uh, see real growth again and that it is more widespread, there needs to be a rethink about how we achieve that growth. And, yep. I, and, and I, see, I do see that. And I see that in the way we invest, whereby now you don't just send an analyst out there and then uh, an ESG specialist, environment, social and government specialist at the end, you go together and look at how a company is being run, partly for downside risk. I mean, we all went through the BP as well as the financial um, uh, banks, you know, the problems there. But it, if you don't have a well-managed, well-governed, truly responsible company, like cut it like a stick of rock, you know, mm -hmm. people do a nice CSR program on the end of very corrupt things, and you do get found out in the end, as co-op mm -hmm. did. One of the things, this, this discussion has kind of organically gone to be very British-focused. So we're meant to be in a globalized world. We're meant to be thinking about this, where China's coming to the fore. They're going to apparently let companies fall in a way that we aren't, didn't do um, here. I mean, from the other side of the coin, from their side of the planet, is this not just a kind of actually a great success of capitalism that's leveling out, basically, historically, in the West, um, we've had it in our you've favor, and now it's got Anne sitting next to you, whose company is taking over the world from Aberdeen, <laughs> and um, and Helena, who works for ultimately an American bank. I think you've got a very international panel. But it's that like the discussion is 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 you know actually capitalism is not that broken. So the inequality we're still talking about is a very British or Western economy focused one. But actually in China and in India and Brazil, it's it, it's getting better sure. rather than worse. Sure, but I don't. I, I think it's understandable that people are. Uh, wary of and perhaps sceptical about the downsides of globalization. I mean, the, the global elite, policymakers, uh, senior senior bankers, um, politicians, have just delivered a once-in-a-century calamity. And the deal with globalization was supposed to be that, look, you have to pay these people an absolute fortune because they're so incredibly brilliant and they're across absolutely everything. And okay, they're blowing up the banking system, it's getting huge, <coughs> but they know what they're doing because they're smarter than their predecessors and this won't go wrong, it's the end of boom and bust and it's called globalization. And they're, they're mobile, so don't do anything that might scare them because they're gonna leave. You have to be very, very nice to them. And then what happens, then what we discover when it blows up is that actually suddenly the bill is national. And it's us, the taxpayers, who pay it. So you, I think you made a very good observation about how uh, companies have, you know, of course, employment has, has, has stayed strong. We shouldn't forget that Britain went into this disaster with a national debt of 400 billion, and it will come out with a national debt of about 1.5 trillion. So there's been a massive transfer from the from essentially private sector debt uh, accumulated in the craziest lending uh, <coughs> boom of, uh, of the last 50 or 60 years, essentially going straight on to the um, public's balance sheet to be paid by future, future taxpayers. So that's why, as a capitalist, I'm uh, pretty cynical and sceptical about the claims of the global elite that actually, okay, fine, a few mistakes were made last time around, but let's get the whole uh, game going again. <laughs> Uh, but, I mean, setting aside the very understandable desire and wish to, to um, that perhaps some of the elite had taken more pain than they did, which you know, put that to one side. If you look more broadly and you look in, uh, internationally, the rise of the middle class globally is something that we shouldn't forget is an immensely powerful driver that has been enabled by globalisation. Mm. 
In, if you look at um, falling birth rates in Africa, if you look at maternal health in Africa, if you look at live births per mother in Africa, varies from country to country. There's still some horrendous problems in certain parts of Africa. But in terms of a broader success story, Africa is well on the path of mimicking where China and India have already started to travel. And when you look at the, the demographics, by 2050, we'll essentially have stopped growing as a global population, if you, if you believe mm. the UN forecasts, if you believe the work that Hans Rosling does, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And that takes us onto a completely different horizon. And I, I, I do see, you know, we've been very gloomy here, but I do see when you look at the number of people who are going to be brought into middle-income categories mm. over the next 20 years globally, I think that globalization in aggregate has been a very powerful mm force for good in that respect. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't say it's all bad, just to put and the I, other point. And I would also make the point, that going back to things like maternal health in Africa, um, Millennium Development Goal 5, the, the, the you know, rate of maternal mortality will drop, etc. I think this brings us to another point about capitalism, is what happens to all this money when we eventually get all these, these people who have all this money and are paid all this money? You know, just like I've, I can't remember the last time I met a person who said how much is a job could pay, I can't remember the last time I met a really rich person who wasn't doing something incredibly useful um, with their money. And you know, a lot of what has happened to help falling maternal mortality in East Africa has, has been, yes, has been funded in many places by governments, but, it's, but things like the Gates Foundation have been the catalyst for that. And you know, Bill, Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates' money came from capitalism. Although, one thing with the Gates Foundation, great work, but why couldn't he make the Microsoft business model a bit more socially aware, <laughs> pay taxes. Look, um, the, thing is, anyway. the thing is, is it matters not to the people of Marseille uh, whether Bill Gates gives his money to Africa or, or whether maternal mortality falls in Africa. They just voted for the Front National en masse. Mm. Most of southern France is going to go Front National unless some electoral deal is done between the two other parties. Right. Turkey's run by a guy who thinks it's a great idea to switch off Twitter. Russia is run by a guy who thinks it's a great idea to kill journalists. This is, what, this is, what, this is also part of globalisation. This is what you created by doing it, by handing you know, jobs, money, power to the global south. So, what, if you want to protect globalization, and I do, I, you know, I, I think globalization has brought the, the world in, in, through a developmental phase bigger than even the discovery of the Americas did, even the industrial revolution of the, of the early 19th century. If you want to protect it, I think you have, somebody has to emerge, like Keynes, like Harry Dexter White, at the end of World War II, and say, this is the new story. This is how people in southern France, Greece, whatever. Um, incidentally, also people in Sao Paulo, um, that, those middle classes on $13 a day uh, that we're also pleased with, they hate the, their lives. The ones I met in Turkey in Gezi Park, what do you do? Balaclava, scarf, Molotov, what do you do? Dot com, shipping clerk, fashion designer. Why? Why do you hate it so much? Because our lives are intolerable. So if we want to protect it and, and grow it, there's got to be a new story. And my concern, I think you're absolutely right to raise this question of pricing power for labour, is I don't think it's just because Thatcher smashed the unions and Reagan put the PATCO, the air traffic controllers, in chains. There's something more fundamental about, about the modern model that is removing labour's pricing power. It doesn't come back. But it, all that means, you can have that, but you can't then have a financialized economy that is based on the, on the, on the fiction that the assets are always going to grow in, in, in value, because they can't against a declining or stagnant base of income. 
So what is the, that's the, the, the question I never hear the answer coming back. What is the future if that carries on? Well, what's your answer then? You talked about non-market forces, but yeah, I don't well, really know what that well, means. Well, you've all heard of the Minsky moment, haven't you? You've all heard of Hyman Minsky. Have you all heard of the Minsky moment? Minsky, the, yeah, Minsky predicted the, do, the, the, the crash. So Minsky's other thing that isn't so well known is they just said socialise the finance system. So you have exciting, you, you unleash entrepreneurial business in the service sector as well as pr production. He was writing in the 90s and 80s, so he mainly looked at production. But let's say private sector gets unleashed, um, deregulate it if you want, uh, but just, just, just definancialize finance. So you have mutuals, you have state banks, you have landless banks, you have ethical banks. And you let them go bust. If you let them go bust if yeah. you have to. And in the end, the state stands behind them, as it does, it stands behind every single financial um, group in this room, then let's, next time it stands behind them, it can take some of the upside. Um, it's, it won't look like what we have, mm. you know, it won't look, there won't, opening Joe and the Juice and Starbucks on every corner won't be as easy, but, but it might, what we're looking for is a sustainable form of capitalism. I think, I think that's a really, really interesting point. I, I attended last year a, a conference on uh, banking regulation which was not one of the most exciting conferences I've ever um, attended. And you know, the, the, um, anybody from the regulator side was in favour of more regulator. An academic stood up and gave a fascinating talk, saying actually very much what you're saying, we need to shrink regulation. Because the problem with regulation is that what you have to police is the boundaries. The boundaries are the problem. And the more, more and more you try and regulate, the bigger is the boundary that you have to police. And the harder it is to do that effectively. So actually, you create a bigger and bigger and bigger area around which arbitrage can take place. So you're better to make it small and tight and utterly ruthless where it happens. And then, so I thought it was an interesting argument because mm. it's not the banks you know, talking about being desperate for less regulation. It's about saying, actually, put more responsibility back onto individuals. And in a sense, with things like peer-to-peer -peer lending, and even digital currencies like Bitcoin, this is all parts of the financial system mm. moving outside mm. of regulated space mm. in response to that, which mm. I think is you know, in itself quite an interesting. But the other point I thought you were perhaps going to make is around innovation and the skills that you need to do it. Because one of the things that we are very, very poor at in much of the developed world, but I think in the UK particularly poor, is we allow our workforce to become obsolescent very, very quickly. Mm. We're not good at continuing training. And even with the training that we put our young people through, if you think about what you need in a digital world, um, it's very, very patchy. You get some, some parts which are excellent, and some parts, you know, some computer science courses have 96, 98% employment rate six months after they come off the course. Some computer science courses, it's less than 50%. You know, why should that be in a digital economy? So I think there's something that we need to do around skills to help give labor back not necessarily pricing power per se, but employability power, which mm. I think we don't have right yeah. now. And we have one million young unemployed people mm. in this country. Young, you know, in the 18 to 24 bracket, unemployment is the highest it has ever been in this country since we started counting. Mm. And what we will find, I think, in, in 15 to 20 years' time is that we have a massive gap in competitiveness with the rest of the mm. world as a result of that. Mm. That is the single biggest thing we should all go out of this room and try and do something about, is hire one more person between 18 and 24. Mm. I hear some murmuring. Are there any questions out there that... Oh, one very enthusiastic hand at the back. <laughs> She's either going to agree very passionately or disagree very passionately. I'm going to try and not cover too much, but my name's Sue Primer. Um, one thing we've not touched on, but I think touches a lot of what you've described, 
from innovation to the digital economy to the info economy is the fact that most investment banks are bundles of dysfunctional IT, some of which is 40, 50, 60 years old. How are we going to create new and better banks as a major pillar of capitalism uh, if we don't get better IT skills, innovation, inclusion, ideas, which mm. goes into the diversity agenda? Isn't now the moment where we could maybe, and I think the UK and London actually could be particularly good at this, unite the technology that's driving the economy with the digital creative stuff that London and other places are very good at, with the kind of jobs and the reputational jobs that young people want to go into. They don't want to say they work at a bank, they might want to say they work for Google. Can we bring all of that together? Because if we don't, whatever the strategy, the fundamental IT that holds up the banking system cannot sustain the economy. It's not sustainable, in my opinion. I think it's, I think it's a brilliant point. Um, and if you look at a bank like RBS, which keeps falling over, uh, it has 70 internal payment systems, the whole thing's a disaster. Many of these banks are just too big and unwieldy. I think they're not just too big to, be, too big to fail, they're too big to, to be managed, actually. Um, but I think actually quite a lot of what you describe is already happening. Mm. And the government has done some, uh, criticised the government for many things, but the government has actually done a lot of work on this behind, behind the scenes. And it's the, probably the single most exciting thing that they're doing on banking is that they've grasped that the new, com new competition is going to come from new models of banking and uh, it's going to be IT driven. Which is why when I referenced Ed Miliband, Ed Miliband suggesting that the answer to fixing the UK's broken banking system is selling off 600 branches of RBS. I mean, who's going to buy them? Mm. That's an entirely old-school way, uh, way of doing it. But I think, I think the government are actually um, thinking, in, that, thinking in, in, in precisely the way that you described. Well, I just corroborate that, really. I think that there's, um, there has been this grappling with this issue. Um, and again, what you don't see until it's sort of way after the fact, people have grappled with the, the problem and then come up with solutions. But I think it's a, it's a great point to make, and it's well understood, I think, in the city. Um, there's a gentleman at the front here. Um, my name's Colin Brown. I have a question about the institutions. Um, the, the kind of capitalism that we're going to get um, is going to be determined by the public institutions around it. And I think that's been true since capitalism uh, right back to the 16th century. Um, how can we make the institutions enduring institutions such that they're not um, too knocked about by the short-termism of our politicians? And I'll give you an example of the 2008 crisis. Because in the, the five to eight years before the 2008 crisis, all the politicians both main parties were saying, we want less and less regulation, go easy on the city, and um, don't be so energetic in, in regulating them. Bang, the 2008 crisis happened. Everybody changed their mind and said, we need more regulation. We weren't regulating enough. We, had, we were asleep at the wheel. None of the politicians said, ooh, we've changed our minds. What they said was, the institutions were wrong, let's smash them up and start again. So how can we have enduring institutions to get past that short-term political perspective? I, I, I think the point on institutions is a really interesting one because actually what I think, if you look at all of the institutions that have been set up since the second, all the intergovernmental institutions that have been set up 
since the Second <coughs> World War. I don't think there's a single one which has actually been dismantled. So it's quite easy mm. to set institutions up. It's very mm. difficult to, to take them away again. And that is relevant on this because if you look at what we've done in the UK where we've gone back to a sort of quasi-tripart system of the Bank of England and the PRA, which is kind of a subsidiary of the PRA, and the FCA, which is not within the... You know, it's questionable whether we've got something that, again, the, the, the sector, the banking sector, won't be able to find its way of flowing yeah. through just because, again, there's a lack of coordination in there. I think, um, I think it's very, very difficult to, to put any form of international regulation, any form of international institution together without seeing it gradually becoming not fit for purpose. When I look around the world, I see all of the, the, the big institutions gradually become less and less fit for purpose. So I think give them a finite life, give them a mandate to do something over a five or a ten year finite life, be really focused on delivering that task, and then at the end of it, you wrap it up and you start again with something else. And I think that's the only way to deal with this point, otherwise it's a structural point. Sorry. I think one key institution we've got to focus on, if we have a fiat money economy as we do, and, we, and, and you know, um, we want, and, and we, I see, you know, that fiat money, that is bank-created money, as something that I don't want to get rid of it. I don't, I don't want to go back to sort of sterilised okay. milk and Kit Kats being the only thing in shops. You know, <laughs> I want a modern and complex economy, but the it's got to be a fraction and not a percentage. I think, I think fractional reserve banking was good when it was a fraction, i.e., like, like a quarter rather than three percent. Um, so how do you do that? Central banks are the key institutions. If you talk institutions, they are running the world. They meet every six weeks in Basel, wherever, Geneva, and they run the world. Okay, so we have to have democratic control over the central banks. We have to be able to have elections where people say things like, I think our central bank should do Basel 3 plus, plus, plus. That might not go down very well with the financial institutions, but like saying, it's not 8%, it's 20%. And it's not gameable. And what's more, here's another thing. We go into Canary Wharf and we say to all the, all, all the, how about this, to the law firms, there's a new law. Gaming the system is now illegal. Never mind GAAP. Actually proposing in, any, in your meetings, let's put them all on record, anybody who proposes a new device or its instrument to game the system is acting against professional ethos. That'd be a great reform, wouldn't it? Because it would put them out of business, but it would actually mean that Basel becomes, I'm happy with Basel if it's just Basel, if, if it's not gained. But it's not, it's, it's, you might as well, you know, it's not worth the paper it's written on at the moment. Well, the trouble is you don't know till afterwards yeah. when something has been gained. That's the problem. I mean, I, what I'm really genuinely interested in is in trying to change more, and it sounds like nebulous, but hearts and minds, so people actually mm. have, you, you can't re legislate and regulate for everything. I mean, I think that's something we have to accept mm. and instead have people realise that if they want to have a sustainable business, then they have to have a, a strong inner compass about what they're but, trying okay, to achieve. So I mean, that might sound naive, but I think it's less naive than believing rules can solve everything. On, re on regulation, I think that, uh, I think it's one of the great myths of the entire crisis is the myth that there wasn't uh, a lot of regulation. There was tons of regulation. There were thousands of regulators employed. There was regulation of the wrong stuff. And what, what had been created when you had the tripartite system essentially had a, it, it did literally have a hole in the middle of it. It became no one's responsibility to say, uh, are, these are these institutions, are these banks getting too big? What happens if the good times end as they always do? And it was a catastrophic, big intellectual failure with tons and tons of, regular, of, of 
regulation and lots of forms to fill out yeah. and, and huge amounts of very, compliance. A very, very visual point to that to me was that when Northern Rock went bust that weekend, did you remember not <laughs> one of the three of them went on the television to deal with it? Yes, they it were was, all pointing it, at each other. Yeah, it was actually, it was left to Angela Knight at the British Bankers Association and her long-suffering hairdresser who, <laughs> to, to rush from programme to programme all weekend because nobody else would do so. Yeah. That's real, real world stuff. Um, Anthony Seldon in the back, please. John, I'm a teacher, and Heather mentioned this problem of youth unemployment. I think everyone has to realise how incredibly dispiriting it is in Hartlepool or, or in schools around the world to be educating people in schools for jobs that the kids, who are very savvy, they know that there aren't going to be jobs. It's really hard to get discipline and real learning. Now, you have to accept what I see that is the truth, which is that we have a factory education system designed for this last industrial revolution capitalism. We are not having schools that are really liberating young kids, giving them a sense of their own personal effect, really freeing them up to discover, you know, it's all about, you know, hey, you know, are you intelligent? What we should be saying is not, are you intelligent, but what are you intelligent at? Every single child at school can be freed up. And you know, one of the great things about the Academy's program is that it does bring in banks and, and, and football clubs, for goodness sake, and, and into schools. We need to get everyone in this room into schools and involved in it, because otherwise we're going to have a really crap education system in the 21st century, not just in this country, but the world over. And that's going to mean revolution and upset and, and anger. It's going to be, you know, we can have to fix it. There has to be a wider sense of responsibility for education. Amongst well, the elites. People seem to be that capitalism isn't the problem, it's regulation in the state not providing education right. effectively. But employment, but I, I have to say yeah. that there, uh, I have to comment on the fact that Anthony Seldon introducing himself as a teacher is like Warren Buffett <laughs> introducing himself as an investor. But, um, I, the, but I, would, I would say employability, the key word there was employability. And if we do not have employability, you know, in, in this country, and this country is not an international problem, this is a domestic UK problem, and it is something, and the government is not good at fixing it. You know, young people have to be given the tools to become employed, and, and what is happening is, you know, those people aren't becoming employed because they haven't been given the right kind of training, and, you know, the government is notoriously bad at that. Can we move a little bit of time before I get into some more questions off kind of the finance bit and more into kind of the new economy? Because obviously, I wonder whether technology entrepreneurs are going to become the new bankers. They're going to become the hate figures because the way they use data is not qualified. No, they're a power that's not necessarily being challenged in the right way. Is anyone worried about that yes. side of things? It's, it's extraordinary. We're making many of the mistakes that we made when we venerated high finance, we're now making with tech. We're imbuing these people with uh, it's the idea that they have this incredible innate genius, that we should be grateful to them, that we shouldn't criticize them uh, in the press. Um, and actually a lot of that, I mean, if you think about it, we've just come through a disaster which was rooted in a failure of that obsession with data, the tyranny of, uh, the tyranny of data. Banking, banks' models were built on this stuff. We're now... Uh, just blithely signing up to the to the tech, and revo computation. To the tech revolution. Speed of computation was but, a kind of way. Yeah, of do and you, these, do and you think that people selling fridges are worth goes, one and a half billion? I, I think it goes to the absolute heart of the problem with uh, globalization, and I accept that globaliz globalization has has benefits, but that these are firms which are now above the nation state, which are too big to tax, are too big to regulate, um, and uh, I think they're about to. Be, I think those firms actually perversely might be. 
I think they might have peaked and might be about to become quite unpopular. But we do have to accept that we are responsible for this. It's not no. that some other being is making all these people very powerful. We are um, giving them the power by giving them their information and so forth. But it is, you know, I, I, that story of the activist in Egypt that said, you know, we use Facebook to schedule the protests and Twitter to organize and communicate with people and then YouTube to show the world. No. I mean, this is an exciting development for people, but then we always... And as was mm. banking and being able to borrow money. But we always go the too far. And that's what we have to recognize as human beings, I think. And, and it's us that have to change. When, when Teddy Roosevelt tried to uh, take down the original J.P. Morgan, J.P. Morgan sent him a note saying, look, can't we just get one of your people and one of my people together and we just sort this out? And Roosevelt told him to piss off. But um, look, now, on, we need that yeah. kind of approach from our, from our politicians. Instead, instead, they get treated like heads of state. When Eric well, Schmidt is in London, he's treated as though he's a god. I, I would just make one, one other point. And that, the, the, the French economist, uh, cognitive capitalist theorist, Yann Moulier-Boutang, has a great um, image for, for what's happening for, in, in the information economy. And he, he says, it's like the discovery of the Americas, but the internet is both the ocean and the galleon and the compass and the crew. In other words, it is everything. But, but the, problem, the, the, the moot point for those of us who are trying to study this is there's no gold. I think the problem for all these companies is there's no gold at the end. What is the gold that's at the bottom of the Facebook, Google, etc.? We know what it is for Amazon. And some, the more closely you're mapped onto an, where the gold used to be, the more easy that answer is. But the, the valuation of, of some of these companies cannot reflect what the, the fact that, that money will ever be made. I can't see where it comes from. And I, I think that's the bubble, the ultimate bubble that bursts. Uh, sorry, but I think that's what it is. I'm going to ask one thing, each of you, in one answer. So, so is capitalism bust? Ian? And are you, are you pessimistic or optimistic? Uh, at the moment, I'm pessimistic. Heather? I'm very optimistic, and I don't think it's bust. Heather? Optimistic, it needs to change. Bust, pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. <laughs> On that note, thanks, our, thank you, Jeff. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening.